Thanks, Dan. Good morning, everyone. I, I had so much fun. I know Dan said this is the preferred group from last night. Uh, I had so much fun with the group last night. I, I have a working theory. My eyes are old. I need it closer. I may need a child just to hold it randomly just so I can see it. Um, I have a working theory that in many ways a congregation kind of reflects the personality of the leader. Whether that's healthy or not, I'm not sure, but I do think that seems to happen. And, and you just have such a kind uh, leader, which explains why I received overwhelming kindness last night. We'll see how today goes. It, it, we may have peaked last night, but um, uh, my last name, in case you're wondering, it is Cuss. Um, my daughter, who is 16, when she was like 10, she came home from school. She's like, Dad, I just, I just really, I want to get married. We're like, a bit, a bit earlier than we thought, but what's, what's going on? She's like, it's my name, Dad. I, I want to get a different name. Uh, there's nothing we can do about the name. It's just, that is my last name. Uh, what can you do? Uh, Mark Twain famously said that sometimes cussing provides relief not even afforded to prayer. So... Um, one of the ways I want to start today is just, I, I think most of us experience a, a profound gap between what we believe about God and what we encounter from God. We have these core beliefs. God is love. God is with us. Uh, and yet, our day-to-day -day experience can be quite different than our core belief. Is that you as well? Like, I believe God loves me, but I don't always feel it. Or I might even say I don't often feel it, honestly. I believe God is with me, but I don't often see it. Uh, and then the third gap, I just thought I'd be further along in my faith by now. Huh. I don't know how else to say it. I just thought I'd be a better Christian than the Christian I am. That's where it's at. Now, those of you who are not followers of Christ, I also was not raised in the church. I came to faith from a very secular, like agnostic, atheistic background. And so I just want you to know, if you're not a follower of Christ, a couple of things. First of all, you are right at home in this church. This is a welcoming place for you to come and bring doubts and fears and questions and even skepticism. The second thing I would tell you that you may not realize is you probably have more in common with those of us who believe in Jesus than you might realize in that we grapple with the gaps as well. For me, out of the three gaps, the hardest one that I have grappled with is the love of God. If I had to be frank, I believe it, Lord help my unbelief, something like that. Um, if, if you were to really get down to my core beliefs, what is actually true in my life is I believe God loves me generically, not specifically, like it's God's job. There's billions of people, uh, those of you who maybe are fans of the musical Les Miserables, one of the great musicals. I'm just number 24601. I'm just another number that God has to love. God loves me generically, absolutely. God loves me specifically, that's hard to believe. Uh, this started for me when I was a trauma chaplain, as Dan mentioned. Uh, I had been married for one week. My first job out of college was trauma chaplaincy. I'd never seen a dead body before. I'd never had any experience of grief. And I thought, well, surely they'll tell me what to do. I'm 24 years of age. They're not just going to throw me in. And within an hour or so of being on the job, you know how in the hospital dramas, they show medical residents doing these marathon shifts? Yeah, I don't mean to be bitter, but they never show chaplains on those TV shows. But we're there as well. We're always there. So my first day on the job was a 28-hour overnight shift. Yeah. And I uh, got to the end of myself in my first call. 
I didn't know what to do. And that's where I discovered my anxiety. And that's why I teach people now is, is, is death and trauma become, if you will, like a boot camp to figure out what's going on in you, what's going on between people. So that year was like an intense experience for me. But one of the things I was not counting on as a, as a chaplain, if you think about it, no one really calls a chaplain when they're bored and just want to hang out with someone fun. Like it just, like no one's in a hospital saying, you know what, we're having such a good time. Why don't we call the chaplain? I bet he's a bundle of laughs. No, <laughs> if, if you're not like, and I don't mean to be crass about it or, or glib, but if you're not helping somebody die or if you're not showing up after someone died, what you're typically doing is helping people process the worst news of their life. And so what happens is they believe that they need a miracle and they believe that the best chance of a miracle is if, if they ask the chaplain to beg God for a miracle because they believe that there's a better chance that God will answer the chaplain's prayer than their prayer. And so what ends up happening is I would spend many times a day begging God. People would beg me to beg God for a miracle. Now, I'll just say I experience miracles. Absolutely. I, I believe God does miracles today. If, if I may pick a bone with God, just not as many as I would like, to be frank. I, I would prefer God do more miracles than God does. And so what happened is the percentages were really rough. Maybe, maybe I could say over the course of a year, trauma chaplaincy, hospice chaplaincy, not great odds. And uh, I'm a people pleaser. I couldn't name this at the time, but it took me a while. But I started taking personally and taking personal responsibility that people were dying. Now, this is not healthy. I'm not promoting this. I couldn't even name it, but I'm a chronic people pleaser. I'm like a freaking golden retriever. I'm just always needing a pat on the head all the time. Am I okay? Am I okay with you? Yes, you're. A, I mean, I'm a 51-year-old man. It's quite pathetic, but it's true. Um, but also something that's true about me is I feel responsible for everybody's experience. So let me just to help myself. If you're bored today, that's your fault. Okay. That just helps me it just, because I'm like, Oh, I hope everyone it's just, if, if I'm not careful, that's how I operate. And, and so over time, over that year, I, I started to put some Teflon around my heart because it hurt too much to be let down by God and let people down. And as Steve Taylor, he's a 1980s punk Christian singer. I'm sure you're like punk Christian singer. There is such a thing, or at least there was such a thing uh, before everyone just produced worship music. Back in the old days of Christian music, there was actually diversity in our music and there was punk as a whole thing. Anyway, that's none of that's in the notes. I don't know why I <laughs> felt a little rant there. But Steve Taylor, he wrote this punk song and it said, since I gave up hope, I feel much better. And I think that probably encapsulated what I did. And, and the fact is you cannot experience love when you have Teflon guarding what goes out and, and what comes in. When I was a chaplain, I happened to work with a guy who introduced us to a theory that helps notice anxiety in any situation. Uh, I'm not going to talk much about the theory tonight. If you come back tonight for our workshop, we'll be diving into this theory. I'll just say for now, it's called systems theory for those of you who are Google nerds, right? Like, oh, let me Google that. There's tons online about systems theory you can learn. Let me just say this. Systems theory, it helps you notice the spread of anxiety in any situation. 
It's fascinating, and it's actually not that difficult to do. It's almost like taking the blue pill from the matrix. You suddenly see a different world that's always been there. And so what it first does is it helps you notice anxiety in yourself. Am I spreading it, and am I catching it? That's helpful. That's very helpful to know next staff meeting, those of you who are raising children tomorrow morning, for example, those of you whose children leave and go to school on a Monday and you're trying to get them out the door, system theory can help you with that because you can notice their anxiety, your anxiety, how they infect each other, and then you get in a cycle of more of the same and try harder. It's, it's fascinating. So you can imagine how helpful this was for an anxious young chaplain. Uh, to walk into rooms. Now, the problem is it, it only trains you in one specific form of anxiety. I, I'm really happy to see in our culture today that we are more comfortable talking about anxiety. I know those of you who are baby boomers, it makes you uncomfortable. You look at millennials and you're like freaking millennials. Um, I, I'll, just say, I'll just say that millennials and Gen Z are a great gift to those of us who struggle to locate our anxiety. They're a great gift to us because they are helping us find language and be more aware. But the problem is, as long as we keep talking about anxiety so generally, nothing's going to change. We have to learn to talk about it specifically because there are so many different kinds of anxiety. And every anxiety has a different playbook. Now, for those of you, when nine minutes into the message, you're like, is there going to be any Bible today? Yes, there will be Bible. <laughs> I'm a preacher. I'm not a clinician. I have no clinical training at all. I'm a preacher. So we will get to Bible. But I have been trained in a form of anxiety that I'd like to help you with. And so if you just think there's all these different anxieties. So let's talk about trauma. Trauma is a specific set of anxiety that operates by a specific set of rules, very differently than, for example, acute anxiety, which we'll get to. Trauma happens when something terrible happened to you. It's real, and it happened in your history. It happened. But then what trauma does is it puts that event in your body and in your future. And so like in our congregation, we have military veterans. They came home from Iraq and Afghanistan, and they're like, I'm fine. And they were fine. And then for whatever reason, five years later, it's like a virus, PTSD activated, and their life unraveled. What happened? Trauma. Now, trauma is different than the kind of anxiety I'm talking about. Let's also talk about the kind of anxieties that require mental health medication. I am not qualified to diagnose that. I'm not a doctor. I would just say this as a pastor. If you or a loved one need mental health medication, you should take mental health medication, and you should thank God that we live in a culture and a society where we have these gifts. Mental health medication is a gift from God. It is no comment on your faith. It is a comment on your chemicals. That's different. I have people in my life who need mental health medication. They have profound faith. In fact, their faith helps them. The way I describe it to people is, is I wake up happy most days, and it's not my fault. I don't want to, I'm not going to apologize. I just wake up happy. Almost like I wake up on first and goal most mornings. That's the way I wake up, first and goal. Whereas people who struggle with anxiety and depression, they wake up on the wrong end zone. And, and the, the, the defense is running at them and they're going to get a safety. And what mental health medication does is help them at least get to maybe the halfway line. And that's not their fault. 
Okay. All right. Acute anxiety. Acute anxiety um, is, is a bit more specific. That's any time you, you might be in life and death, actual life and death. And so it doesn't last very long at all. Like if you're on the interstate and you're almost in a car accident, you have to swerve that big rush of adrenaline, or you're out jogging and you see a snake and you're like, is that a bull snake or a rattlesnake? Very important question. But, <laughs> but your, your body is saying you are in life and death danger and your body is helping you. Um, you know, if, if you lose a child at the playground, things like that, that's acute anxiety, but it's short term. Okay, my field is what's called chronic anxiety, and it has its own rule book. Here's what's fascinating about chronic anxiety. It is not based on something real. It is based on something false. Trauma is based on something real. Anxiety, depression with medication, real. Acute anxiety, real. Chronic anxiety, false. Wow. So I believe everyone I meet must like me for me to be okay. That's false. But when I don't get it, I get filled with this thing called chronic anxiety. I believe that everybody, that I must always be courteous to you, and you must always be courteous to me, and you must always be courteous to each other. And when I see someone being discourteous and rude, I get filled with this thing. You might call it irritation, anger. And that's what chronic anxiety is. Chronic anxiety does not look like worry and fear. That's why some of you are like, I'm not an anxious person. Number one, yes, you are. Ask someone who loves you. They would be happy to point out your anxiety. What it might look like is anger bursts, uh, rants, right? These kinds of things. Or it might look like having to lay on the couch and binge Netflix. All of that is evidence that you're in the grip of chronic anxiety because you did not get your false needs. This is why, as a pastor, you can see why I might be fascinated by this topic. Because if we can discover what's false in our life and give it to God and exchange it for what's true, Jesus says, you can know truth. Chronic anxiety always puts you in a false reality. So just thinking about back when I was a chaplain, I would walk into a room, and one of the things I believe about myself is I am supposed to make people feel better. Well, how does that work with death? Not well. And so my impulse to say something or do something was not, in fact, for them. It was for me. You might say, I needed to anxiously make them feel better so I could calm down. Those of you who have ever gone shopping with a toddler, you know what this is like. You're in the grocery aisle with a toddler. The toddler wants Cheetos. You do not want an orange car. It's very reasonable. And so you say, no, you don't get Cheetos. No Cheetos for you. You're like the soup Nazi in that moment. No Cheetos for you. <laughs> and your toddler uses the only power tool available to him. He throws the tantrum. He does the swan dive and you have to catch your kid. And now he's screaming, want Cheetos, want Cheetos. What's happening in that moment? You have chronic anxiety because you have a false belief on what kind of parent you're supposed to be. You're also mindful of the other parents circling you like sharks, right? <laughs> Praying the prayer of the Pharisee. Thank you, Jesus, I'm not like that parent, a sinner. And you're all mindful of this. What do I do? What do I do? That's chronic anxiety because it's built on a false belief. And so you anxiously try to calm your child down or you appease your child, but it's because you can't manage your anxiety. You've caught their infection. You're infecting them. It's escalating. That's chronic anxiety. It, what it looks like is not worry and fear. Chronic anxiety looks like reactivity. So two questions you can take away. Maybe you could ask in your house churches next week if you want to. Number one, what do I think I need that I don't really need? 
most of us in this room have about 50 false needs. So the more specific you can get, the more free you can be. You, even Here's a question. How much money do you need in your bank account to relax? That's exactly right. Just 20% more than I have now. So what do I think I need that I don't really need? And then the second helpful question, what kinds of situations make me reactive? Now we'll get into some of this tonight, but what you're looking for in reactivity is either getting bigger than human or smaller than human. I'm a big guy, deep voice. I kind of speak very kind of definitively. It's no great surprise. I typically get bigger when I'm anxious. I interrupt people. I stop listening to learn and I'm now listening to defend. Sometimes I get really aggressive when I'm bigger. I was flying home from Chicago. I was doing a speaking engagement, got to the O'Hare airport, which if you're familiar with O'Hare, that's where Satan lives. That's actually, <laughs> that's his house. He lives in O'Hare airport. It's a terrible place. And I was there in the afternoon and every 20 minutes they kept canceling my flight from like two in the afternoon till 11 at night. They then say, hey, sorry guys, all flights are canceled, thunderstorms. And so now two or 3,000 of us are trying to get a hotel. One in the morning, I find my hotel back at the airport at 4.30. I'm exhausted. It's no excuse for what happened next. <laughs> we land in Denver. The seatbelt sign goes off. And I, I don't know if you can believe this, but the family behind me start to bolt up the aisle. They skip their turn. Now, I've already expressed one of my core values is courtesy. One of the ways you can locate your chronic anxiety is when somebody violates your core values. One of the ways to practice is go on social media. And notice yourself, right? And so they violated my core value of courtesy. Everybody waits their turn. And so the teenage girl got up the aisle out of my peripheral vision. She, she made it through, but I stopped the rest of the family. I stuck my arm in the aisle. True story. Like I'm Gandalf. <laughs> like none shall pass. And I turned around and I addressed the family. I said, hey, we're all trying to get off this plane. Let's all wait our turn. Now, in my mind, this was perfectly reasonable because chronic anxiety puts you in a false reality. You are no longer able to see what the situation requires. You're operating out of a false reality. And what chronic anxiety says to me is, somebody's discourteous. Steve, what the world requires is that you become judge, jury, and executioner. Unhinged self-righteousness. By the way, some preachers tell stories back in the old days when they're a sinner. Most of mine are like recent. <laughs> this was just not long ago. This was last year. I mean, I was actually flying back from teaching anxiety workshops. Just, <laughs> just so we're clear. Chief of sinners over here. So my arm's out. The teenage girl is, is up the aisle. And the, the mother invites me to have a relationship with my mother that's illegal. Like you just... <laughs> And uh, they invite me to go to a very rude place. And then my tricep is amazing, but they push through it. Um, and um, as I was getting off the plane, I was so angry. I mean, I was, I was like Jonah angry. Like, why? You know, I, was, I was completely unhinged. And as I get off the plane, the flight attendant, she'd seen the whole thing. She said, sir, um, I thought it would help you to know that young woman was having a panic attack. And, uh, you know, what you did is block, block her family from helping her. That's the power of chronic anxiety. I'm a, I, that was not the time for me to say, oh, I'm a pastor. And, um, <laughs> you know, 
No, we didn't need that. It's amazing because um, it's amazing what's under the surface that blocks your capacity to be aware and present. I remember one time in the emergency room, a woman came in and she had not, um, she had worn a seatbelt, but she was on carpool and the kids had convinced her not to let them wear seatbelts and in an accident, all the kids ejected fighting for their lives. Now, they all made it. Some of them had serious injuries. They all lived. There's like four kids. She was in a minivan. But I didn't have a lick of empathy for her because in the Cuss family, not wearing a seatbelt is three steps lower than murder in the Cuss family values. And you cannot judge somebody and be connected to them at the same time. You can't do it. You'll be amazed at everything that bubbles under the surface that is the core basis of your deepest beliefs. Every human being has up to five core false needs. I'm going to put them on the screen for you, and let's see if you can find yourself on what we call the big five. Now, we don't all have all of these five. By the way, if you're looking at these and you're like, I think I have all five, there's nothing wrong with you. It's fine. But most of us do not have all five. But some of you are control freaks. You just have to control your household or your workplace. And any time that you can't predict what's going to happen or any time something comes that wasn't on your mental agenda, you get really reactive. Some of you are perfectionists. Where's my perfectionists? And if, if you're sitting next to a perfectionist, they did not put their hand up, just give them a little nudge. And, and it's because they're like, I don't think I could put my hand up perfectly. I'm not even going to try it. Like, that's how it works, right? Uh, perfectionists, you believe that, that you're supposed to get it perfectly right every time. The first time you ever try something, even though you've never done it before, you expect, having never done it before, that you can do it perfectly. Perfectionists, you've never looked at your work and said, that was well done. Even as I say that, you're like, oh, no, that's a sin. No, I could always do it better. Um, always knowing the answer, that's one of mine. If I'm in a staff meeting and Jimmy asks Renee a question and I know the answer, I have to stop myself from answering. Isn't that ridiculous? Um, always being there for people. Somebody somewhere is suffering, I must bake lasagna. You just start like baking massive amounts of lasagna just because somebody somewhere is hurting. And, and you think... You think it's about helping people in need and you don't realize it's about your incessant need to be needed. Have you ever overextended yourself? Have you ever found yourself getting fed up with the person you're helping because they don't change at the rate that you think they should be changing? And so you cut them off and then you come home and you're lonely. You're like, well, who's there for me? I'm there for all these people, even though no one asked you to be, right? That's because your family of origin says, we help others, we don't ask for help. That's my family of origin. My mom is wheelchair bound right now. And I was home with her in September. In fact, I was supposed to be with you guys in September. And I think, Dan, I called you like a day before we got on the plane. I had to rush home to Australia to take care of my folks. And uh, my mom had had a seizure. And, and my dad is dragging her around the house by the armpits. She needs help getting everywhere. And, and my wife and I are like, hey, what do you think about a wheelchair? Oh, we're not there yet, they said. We're not there yet. 
When are we going to be at wheelchair? I was ready. I took my dad to this place where you can rent all this equipment, the booster seat for the toilet, everything to make their life easier. And dad's like, no, no, we'll get that when we're ready. Why is that? Because cusses don't need help. Cusses help others. Well, that's helpful to know because that affects my prayer life. I very rarely pray for myself. Last night backstage, Dan said, is there anything we can pray for you for, Steve? I was like, no. Nothing at all. Why? Because I'm always there for others. And then, of course, people's approval. Now, where are you on the big five? Uh, Dan told me that you guys enjoy a little interaction during sermons. So what's going to happen next is Pastor Dan's fault. (laughs) Now, just to be efficient here, where's our microphone people? Do we have microphone people? Thank you. Uh, Just to be efficient here, I would prefer to skip the awkward phase where we all stare at each other. Where do you see yourself on the big five? Um, and just so you know, it's very difficult to outlast a chaplain when it comes to silence. <laughs> so who would like to play this game that's sweeping the nation? Where? Yes, sir, down the front. So if we'll just, what we'll just do, have you stand up, say your name, and then simply tell us where you find yourself on the big five. Sam, the last three. Last three. Do you want to say a little more about that? Um, we'll need um, them. No mic? The Good. And when I don't have the answer, I get upset. Good. Great job. And then the other one is my family's like yours. You know, we're, all, we're always there for someone else. Yeah. Until I got taught about that a number of years ago. Good. Um, and that's the one going Good. Sam, great answers. Thank you very much. Give Sam a hand, first of all. That was really. I also, thanks for using your outdoor voice. Uh, but um, boy, Sam really laid out some things for us there. Um, where he notices these things in him, and the goal is how do we get them inside and out, and then exchanging them for the gospel? Yeah, uh, miss, are you Mrs. Sam? Yes, I know he's Mr. Debbie. Oh. I like that. I like that. Well played. Well played. Um, I'm absolutely the first two. I'm okay. trying to recover from the perfectionism. Okay, good. So I, I'm I'm kind of a recovering one. Good. Total freaking control freak. Okay. I mean, the pandemic put me on the anxiety meds because I had to shut a business down. I had to go to work for somebody else after being self-employed for 20 years. And I had no control and it freaked the crud out of me. I I just could not handle that. And occasionally the approval thing, but as I'm getting older, it's just, it's not whatever people think. Yeah, live your one wild and beautiful life and let people Yeah, they're going to think what they're going to think, so who cares? Okay, okay, very good. Control and perfection. Debbie, a quick follow-up question. Yeah. Do you do any kind of hobbies that involve craft? Occasionally. Do you you make something? Do you cook? Ew. Okay. Where does your perfectionism um, come out? Uh, in business, I want the things to be perfect. Okay. Are you good with spreadsheets? No, I find them annoying. Okay. What's, what's your line of business? Um, well, now I'm going into content creation. Content and, creation. And so I'm struggling with perfectionism on wanting on the, the video to be perfect. the words perfect. to be just right. Yeah. Oh, very and, good. And I'm like stupid competitive. Okay, that probably has never gotten you in trouble. Thanks, no. Debbie. You can hand the, <laughs> hand the microphone back. Okay, so content creation. So one of the things that Debbie could do to manage her perfection is intentionally put five mistakes in one video. Maybe say something wrong. Maybe misspell a word, something like that. 
Yeah, so, so as long as, um, you know, I don't have the power to make Debbie change, but as long as she says no, nothing will ever change, she'll just keep being on the perfection treadmill because here's what chronic anxiety does, is chronic anxiety is a gospel. And what it says is, if you don't get what I'm telling you you need, Armageddon will happen. That's why my arm went out on the airplane. Those people are discourteous. The next thing that is going to happen is Armageddon. You must stop Armageddon. And all of this is subconscious. It turns out that, that our belief in Jesus is not automatically our deepest, most core belief. This was a great surprise to me. I just assumed because I was not a Christian, I became a Christian, Jesus has changed my life. Jesus absolutely revolutionized my life. And as a pastor, I have given my vocational life to Jesus. I paid money and time to study the Bible. And, you know, like this is a serious thing for me. But it turns out I have deeper, more core beliefs that are under my belief in Jesus. It has helped me to think about this, that my belief in Jesus is my most precious belief. But it's not my deepest belief. I operate out of these big five, which is good news because now I have a chance to deepen my belief in Jesus, and thus experience God's love and freedom and peace. When you think about the word, the gospel, you know, most of us say, well, that's a church word. But it didn't used to be a church word. When Jesus was born, and when the apostle Paul and Luke wrote the New Testament, the word gospel was a political word, not a religious word. And, and Paul and Luke particularly stole that vocabulary. They stole some words from Rome. They stole gospel, they stole Lord, uh, and they stole son of God. Isn't that interesting? Before Jesus, son of man was the designation in the Old Testament for God's son. But Jesus came along, and, and as Luke tells us, those of you who know your Bible and Christmas, Luke says, in the days of Caesar Augustus. That's how he starts his nativity story. That is Luke doing, if I may interpret, one of these to Rome. <laughs> because Caesar Augustus was the son of Julius Caesar. Many of you right now, you're back in middle school history. And Julius died, and Augustus, the son Julius died and Augustus says, my dad is now a God, which makes me the son of God. And one of Augustus's nicknames was son of God. And people called him Lord. In fact, the most common confession of faith, if you will, in the Roman Empire is Caesar is Lord. And so uh, Caesar had a poet named Virgil. You can Google all of this. And Virgil would follow Caesar Augustus around and write poetry about how amazing he was. Those of you who are Monty Python Holy Grail fans, Brave Sir Robin. Brave Sir Robin had the same, was it Patsy, his little guy with a, and they would sing about all Brave Sir Robin's exploits. Virgil did that for Caesar Augustus and Virgil wrote a poem. You can Google it. And the poem says, the day of Caesar Augustus's birth is a day of great news, glad tidings and joy for all nations. Does that sound familiar to you? And then the New Testament authors stole all that language and said, nah, you think the most powerful human in the world has all the power? The guy that has all the power is this little baby you've never heard of who was born in the armpit of the Roman Empire, so obscure no one ever cares about it. That's the guy. And here we are 2,000 years later, and it turned out that the people who wrote the Bible knew what they were talking about. 
because what we do now, right, is like, like in Rome, you've got Nero and Caesar, and then you've got Peter and John and Mary. 2,000 years later, we name our children Peter, John, and Mary, and our dogs Nero. So it gives us an idea of who has the power and who doesn't. And Rome had a gospel, and it was called the Peace of Rome. Those of you who know Latin, it's the Pax Romana. And if you lived right, you might get peace. So I, I know we're kind of jumping around a lot here, but, but if you can just follow along, uh, it helps to know that every gospel has a, a same set of rules. Just like anxiety operates by rules, every gospel operates by rules. Every gospel has a path, a promise, and a payment. So what you can start doing is thinking about your deepest beliefs through the lens of a gospel. So in the Roman gospel, the path is pay your taxes, let us invade and conquer you. Let us steal your women and take your children and enslave them. And if you let us do that, we will dangle in front of you a promise, the peace of Rome. We'll offer protection, you'll have roads, all of that stuff. But who's paying? That's the question. And in the Roman gospel, the majority paid and the minority got the benefit. Uh, Justin Meggett is a New Testament scholar. He's a specialist in the Corinthian church. And he says 97% of the Corinthians lived hand-to-mouth subsistence, daily grind existence. 3% got the peace of Rome. 97% paid. Pretty rough. I grew up in the gospel of 1980s Australian teenagers. Teenagers have a gospel. I was at my daughter's, my daughter's 16, I was at her birthday party last night and I was watching the teenage gospel lived out right there on the dance floor. All of those social pressures and who likes who and all, it was really fun for my wife and I. But when I was a teenager, when I was a teenager, I lived for the teenage gospel. You have to be really good at academics or you have to be really good at sports or you have to know how to talk to a pretty girl and make her laugh. That's the path. And then the promise is you get to be somebody which when you're a teenager is everything. Your friends decide you're somebody, you're in. Uh, um, okay, so academic sports, pretty girl. For those of you who like to keep score, I was zero for three in the teenage gospel, zero for three. As a BC student, I was always last picked on the team. I'm not exaggerating. I love sports and I'm terrible at them. And then I, I would try to talk to girls. I'd just get so like verklempt that I'd step on myself and it was awkward. I couldn't make them laugh. And then I'd just go home and payment, 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 payment. Never got the peace, never got the acceptance. All of us live for dozens of gospels. You could examine the American dream through the lens of path, promise, payment. One of the things we grapple with as a culture is in our history, who paid and who benefited. And how can we in the 21st century do better? It's powerful. Now, in every gospel except one, the human pays, the God benefits. Go back to Moses in Egypt and the Egyptian God system with the sacrifices and the crops. Human pays, God benefits. The Greek God system that you studied in high school, human pays, God benefits. The modern religions, even though many of our modern religions teach really good things, like let's be honest, Buddhism and Islam have great teachings. The five pillars of Islam is a great teaching on how to be a human being. However, the human pays and the God benefits. Only in the Christian gospel, the God pays, the human benefits. 
It's scandalous. It's, it's revolutionary. That's why I've given my life. I've never seen anything like it. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. And so what you can start to do is measure your belief system by who is paying. The simplest way to measure a gospel is to see who is paying. And chronic anxiety, it's always making me pay. And I'm never getting the payoff. Steve, if you just worry more, you'll get peace. Path, promise, payment. But the promise is like a dangling carrot. Have you ever seen greyhound racing? It's a big thing in Australia. It's not very big in America. But you probably get the idea. A bunch of greyhounds in a chute like horses. A fake mechanical rabbit out front. They just keep the rabbit about 30 feet in front of the greyhounds. And it's a circular track like a horse race. Off they go. Once in a while, funny things happen. You can see these on YouTube. You can see like Greyhound races gone bad on YouTube. It's a great way to spend Sunday afternoon, I feel. Uh, one time I was watching one, and I remember this as a kid, and a real live rabbit, like also known as the worst timing ever for this rabbit, crosses the track, and half of the Greyhounds chased it. And I was like, well, at least they can see the real thing. But uh, several times there'll be an electrical failure and the mechanical rabbit will, will stop and they'll run into it. Now, once they've done that, you can never make them race again because they discovered, oh, the thing I've been chasing my whole life isn't real. <laughs> Why are greyhounds smarter than humans? That's what I want to know. <laughs> That's what I want to know. So what you can figure out is, uh, what is my anxiety making me do. And so Debbie's challenge is I publicly shame and embarrass her. <laughs> Gently though, yeah. Is, is perfectionism giving me the payoff of peace, freedom, and love? And if it isn't, maybe be more suspicious of its promise. So where we're going to end is we're actually going to go one step deeper if you're up for it. Yeah. And we're going to look at the way we talk to ourselves because that's a gospel. God has a voice, and your inner critic has a voice. And depending on the kind of church you were raised in, for some of you, you can't tell the difference between God's voice and your inner critic's voice. It sounds like the same voice of shame and condemnation. Uh, Herbert McCabe is a Catholic priest, or was a Catholic priest. He says, what sin does is it doesn't change God's view of me. It changes my view of God's view of me. He says, look at the prodigal son story. Whether it's the younger son or the oldest son, they were both living in sin. They were both in sin. And they both saw the father differently because of their sin. But the father did never changed. You read that story objectively, the father is consistent, consistent character all the way through. So Herbert McCabe says, it is our sin that projects onto God an opinion that God brings shame and condemnation to us. And Apostle Paul agrees where he says, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The author of Hebrews agrees when he says, Jesus scorned shame on the cross. Jesus went like this to shame. <sighs> scorned it. Amazing. But our inner critic keeps speaking up. So the question that we're going to ask, there's two questions here, is what message does your inner critic send? And this is homework for you. What you can do is, Take it out for a nice little Sunday afternoon gospel spin. Path, promise, and payment. And the second question is, how would you describe it to somebody? Let's say next Sunday you're in your house churches. 
Maybe you'd be willing to try this exercise. I'll do it for you now so you can kind of see how it goes. My inner critic, uh, early in my inner critic, like the first stage is, you should know better by now. That's what it always says. Steve, you should know better by now. Come on. But it's always condescending like that. It's like disgusted with me. But the deeper level is that I'm stupid and everyone knows it. When, when my inner critic's really going on a bender, it tells me how stupid I am. Uh, and I remember, particularly 2016, I was fly fishing in the Blue River in Silverthorne. In the Blue River, because that's what fly fishermen do. And I love fly fishing, and I'm not very good at it. And back then, I really wasn't very good at it. And I could see the fish were biting, they were actively feeding, and everyone around me was catching, and I couldn't catch a fish. And my inner critic's like, see how stupid you are. You are so stupid, you're not even smarter than a fish with a brain the size of a fish. That's pretty dark. And then if I really let my inner critic get the better of me, it says you are not worth loving. You are not worth it. Hence, my challenge to receive God's love. Because if my inner critic is winning the gospel battle and I am believing it over my belief in God, I am blocked from encountering the love of God. Now, as I explain my inner critic, uh, the second part of this game, and yes, this is a game, it's sweeping the nation. I'm sure you've already played the inner critic game. What a fun game. Um, is how would you describe what you just heard me say? Now, you could use adjectives like, oh, Steve, that's like harsh, condemning, unrelenting, cruel, flagellating. Those would be descriptions. Or for those of you who maybe use more metaphors, Steve, it, it feels like you're trapped. It feels like you're being abused. If you do this in your house churches, you're actually going to write down the descriptions. Don't write down the inner critic. Just write down the descriptions. Because now you get a list of adjectives that describe a gospel you are believing, which gives you an incredible opportunity to make a list of adjectives of the one true gospel that saved our lives. Loving, patient, kind. And this is how I have unlocked belief in my life to have this exchange uh, with God. If we go back to the big five, control, perfection, knowing the answer, always being there for people and approval, what you'll notice is those are the five core attributes of God. Those are the five core attributes that make God, God, and us not God. God is in control, so we don't have to be. God is perfect. God knows everything. God is there for everyone. And God gives us approval. We don't have to earn it or strive for it. We are fully known and fully loved, and God loves us anyway. Um, the very first temptation that humans succumb to from the accuser was, you can be like God. That was the offer that the accuser gave Adam and Eve. You can be like God. Anytime humans overreach and try to be more than human, we get anxious. That's actually what generates chronic anxiety. I'm talking clinically. What generates chronic anxiety, false need, is when we overreach and try to do God's job instead of our job. Uh, one of the tools that we teach, I'll be going into this tonight, is you can just draw three columns in your journal. What's mine? What's God's? What's theirs? In whatever situation you're anxious about. What's mine? What's God's? What's theirs? Can't get your kids out to school in the morning? What's mine? Very little. 
Let them be late. And when the principal calls, say, would you meet with my child? Because I'm tired of anxiously making them on time. What's theirs? They can be responsible. And so on. You can do this for anything. So what path does your inner critic have you on? And what promise? And is it fulfilling its promise? Or is it lying to you? My inner critic has not updated its message in 45 years. It treats me like the same seven-year-old when it first started talking to me. Isn't that interesting? It gives me no credit for progress. In contrast, the one true gospel, 1 John 3. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. There's a thing in the church where we think that humility is like self-condemnation. But can you imagine standing in the presence of your king saying, I know better than you. That's arrogant. That's pretty arrogant. I tried to fire my inner critic. He kept showing up to work. He's like Milton from Office Space. I laid him off and he had nowhere else to go. So what I've learned to do, and this is where I want to close with us, I've learned that I cannot get rid of him, but I can contain him. And that's all he needs. Because what was happening is he was living in the corner office of my brain. I gave him the best real estate of my brain. So now when he shows up for work, I show him his little basement office with his little stapler, for those of you who know <laughs> that reference. And I try to live in such a way that God has the corner office of my brain, and I do that by faith. So when my inner critic says, you're not worth loving, and uh, God says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made, who's telling the truth, and which one of those gives me good news? And then I try to live my life that day as if that is true. When my inner critic says, you know, you should know better by now, and condemns me, and Paul says, there's, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Who's telling the truth? And so this is the work I do to experience the love of God. It's changed my life. That same passage in the message translation, this is the only way we'll know we're living truly. This is the same passage in a different wording. This is the only way we'll know we're living truly, living in God's reality. It's also the way to shut down debilitating self-criticism, even when there's something to it. For God is greater than our worried hearts, and he knows more about us than we do ourselves. How do you tell the difference between your inner critic and the voice of God? Your inner critic always condemns God when necessary convicts. That's the difference. And when I have done wrong and need to make right with God or with others, the Holy Spirit says, hey, you've done wrong and gives me a path to freedom, peace, and love. My inner critic never, it just keeps me like, baby in a corner from dirty dancing. It just always trying to tuck me in a corner, but there's no path to freedom. It never offers me a path to resolution and freedom. That's how I've learned to notice the difference. It's difficult to be loved by God, to stand there like a man or a woman and receive the love of God without pretense, no Teflon on your heart, fully vulnerable, no self-condemnation. I'm just going to close in prayer and the prayer is going to be on the screen. So I'm just going to give you 30 seconds to pray and then I'll pray. 
Here's the prayer. What if I were at least as blank to myself as God is? And just, just a little bit of time for you to fill in the blank for yourself. As you compare the adjectives of your inner critic and the gospel of Jesus. And then just after a little bit of silence, I'll pray for all of us. What if I was at least as patient with myself as you are, Lord? Or what if I was at least as loving or as kind? Why is it, Lord, that I am kinder to others than I am to myself? How am I ever going to love my neighbor as I love myself? Father, you are love. If we cut you, you bleed love. Your essence is love. Every command you've ever given us is to give us freedom, help us thrive as humans. My prayer for those of us in this room, Lord, is that we would exchange the lie for your truth. Thank you, Lord, that truth sets us free and that we can be free indeed. And we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.